Welcome to Epidemiology Now. My name is Eunyoung Lee. Epidemiology Now is a podcast prepared for students in Health 323 Introduction to Epidemiology at Queen's University. Hello, everyone. Today we will discuss about the top of the hierarchy um, of evidence, systematic reviews, and meta analysis. And we invited an expert on this topic. Hello, Dr. Nicholas Kuzik. Hello. Hello. So Dr. Kuzik is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Research Institute. Um, so welcome to the show and thanks for coming in. Um, and yeah, do you want to introduce yourself to the class? Sure. Yeah, um, I'm still getting used to the term doctor. It's uh, It was in September that I graduated from the University of Alberta and moved out to Ottawa. So that's still getting used to, but thank you for the introduction. My name is Nicholas Oliver Corey Cusick. Um, I have a bunch of names mixed in there. It's, it's kind of a mess, a long story too. So I guess my descriptive characteristics, I'm a very logical speaker, so I'll, I'll start from there. Uh, I'm a biological male, preferred pronouns he, him. Uh, age 34 years, mass 100 kilograms, height 195 centimeters, currently residing in the unceded or unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Nation, otherwise known as Ottawa, as you pointed out. Uh, and yeah, occupied it, or I'm a postdoctoral fellow at CHEO working under the supervision of Dr. Mark Tremblay. Awesome. That was, <laughs> that was a very fascinating introduction. Um, and your height and weight are very impressive. <laughs> you can calculate my BMI if you want. Yes, you must have really good BMI. <laughs> I think I've been in the overweight category for most yeah, of exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> okay, it's not favorable need... for tall people. Right, not at all. And also for people who are muscular. Oh, stop. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, thanks for coming in, and I really appreciate you coming in and talk to us about systematic reviews and meta-analysis. This is uh, almost the finale of this course, and of course, like I mentioned in the hierarchy of evidence, it's at the top, so producing high-quality evidence um, research methods. So um, I'm really excited to talk about this topic. Um, so before we begin, do you want to say something about your research training, your background and your research interest? Sure. Um, so I guess in terms of research training, I was fortunate enough in my undergraduate degree, one of the first projects that I was involved in was a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, and that was the one that I sent over to you, uh, looking at metformin use. Not necessarily the direction that uh, my career went in or my research has gone in to date, but I still think it's, it's very important because it sort of picks apart BMI a little bit. Um, but the brunt of my training has been in early years movement behaviors. So physical activity, sedentary behavior, and sleep, uh, how it's related to health, uh, what are some things that are associated with it, but a lot of it is residing in the statistical analyses and the measurement of, so accelerometers being one example, um, but I have had as well a lot of experience with systematic reviews or reviews in general, so we were talking beforehand, I think this, I'm currently involved in my ninth systematic or scoping review of which I've led or I'm leading four and I've led two meta-analysis for systematic reviews. 
So I think anything that goes very technical or you can use logic to figure it out pretty fast tends to be where I gravitate to. So stats, systematic reviews are great for this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure students are now familiar with different epidemiological study designs. Um, So uh, I want to talk a little bit about that. But before, what is accelerometer? An accelerometer. Well, Mm. an accelerometer can be thought of as Well, the ones we use are essentially research-grade Fitbits. So a Fitbit has an accelerometer. Your cell phone has an accelerometer. It's it's any device that's used to measure movement. Mm -hmm. Um, You could even think of the old pedometers as a crude form of an accelerometer, Mm -hmm. uh, just because it it would have sort of a set point on how much motion should be considered movement or a step. So yeah. an accelerometer broadly, anything that can measure movement. Uh, an important feature that we tend to look at is it also has the timestamp. So if you can see how much movement occurred over a course of time, then you can start categorizing things like, easily categorizing things like sedentary behavior or stationary time, I should say, and physical activity. And then based on the patterns of that movement, so not necessarily the intensity, but perhaps what's happening in that duration of time, you can start to figure out things like sleep. So for instance, in a window of time, how many times was there a shift in movement? Mm -hmm. So I guess it's um, a scientific version of Fitbit or Apple Watch or something that we use every day. Yeah, absolutely. That's that tends to be when I'm recruiting parents into studies, as I said, I worked with earlier children quite a lot. I, I tend to tell them that it's a research grade Fitbit that we're looking at. Nice. Yeah, that's a yeah. that's a good way to put it. OK, mm-hmm. so let's go back to the main topic. Um, so you've said that you either you were involved in or you led nine systematic reviews or scoping reviews or meta analysis. Mm-hmm. How did you end up being involved in so many reviews? Well, the first one um, was through my undergraduate research. So mm-hmm. that, that that was really just um, fortune, right? Luck, whatever you want to call it. So at the end of our kinesiology degree, you had to do some sort of work practicum. So a lot of people would go into physiotherapy clinics, uh, occupational therapy. I was fortunate enough, I interviewed as one of my choices with Dr. Norman Boulay, mm-hmm. uh, who does physical activity and diabetes research at the University of Alberta. And the interview quickly turned into about an hour of just chatting, shooting the breeze, and, and we, we got on very well. And he quickly, he told me, you know, you don't have as much knowledge as everyone else, which makes total sense. I'm an undergraduate student. So here are some important readings that you can go. So I would just start turning through readings, turning through readings. And then he saw that I was going through it very fast. And then eventually he got me to do a lit review for one of his papers that I was involved in. And then through that lit review, I noticed there was uh, in children, there was a trend going on with the prescription or off-label prescription of metformin. So he said, well, why don't we pursue this in a systematic review? And I think from there, it just, it's a sort of a snowball thing, right? If I'm mm-hmm. on one systematic review, maybe I get recruited onto another systematic review because someone knows that I'm capable of performing that task and it just keeps going from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so your paper, so the, your paper that, you know, 
started with lit review, uh, then it ended up being a systemic review and meta-analysis. It was published in JAMA Pediatrics, mm -hmm. one of the best journal in the field. So as an undergraduate student, how did you yeah. feel about that? Uh, probably ignorant would be the best way. I mean, <laughs> I, I was told by people around me that it was a good thing, um, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know a lot about impact factor or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I even recall, I looked at the journals, um, sort of what sort of papers they were interested in. And I read that and I said to Norm, oh, this might be a good fit. And I think he, he sort of laughed, but he was willing to entertain. And he was like, okay, sure, we can submit to JAMA Pediatrics after we had just been rejected from, from a different journal that was maybe less than. And sure enough, it got to revise and resubmit. And uh, yeah, we got published there. Nice. But but yeah, ignorant for sure. I think if you look at my my publication record, it has high impact factor. Then now it's leveled out. <laughs> so I'm trying to get back to that high end. Yeah, that's good. And I really like that. It sounds like you really enjoy the process without really thinking about the outcome or really being happy about your accomplishment. It was just the process that you purely enjoyed and that got you to um, continue your education in grad school. Yeah, and, and you know what, it's it's interesting that you say that Norm and I had a conversation about that or several conversations about that and that undergraduate research is, is it can be a very blue sky research um, mm -hmm. because you're, you're just sort of coming at it with no agenda, you're, you're curious, you're trying to figure things out. Maybe you take some unorthodox steps at looking at data, but, mm -hmm. but you're not too concerned about the metrics or anything like that. You're just curious. So it's, yeah. it's a very sort of peer research experience, I would say. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, there are two different actually, but connected um, study designs that we'll be talking about. One is systematic review. Second one is meta-analysis. So let's go with systematic review first. So what is a systematic review? I just had a training meeting on this uh, for a team that I'm leading. So it's perfect. Mm -hmm. So a systematic nice. review is an attempt to answer research questions through a systematic pooling of relevant literature. So, so you start off with the most important part, which is your research question. In fact, it's the most important part of not just systematic reviews, but any research. You have to have a solid research question to which you're going to build everything out on. So you start with this research question and then you go into piloting your search strategy. So you start adding words, looking through all the literature in different databases. And then once you're satisfied with your search strategy, you can start pooling everything together. And the very fun part of starting to screen through things. So in some, it may be as little as 700 or a thousand titles and abstracts to go through at this stage. But there's, there's some, I think I saw one the other day that was somewhere around 100,000 titles and abstracts that a team went through, which is, so you're sitting there going, yes or no, this study should potentially be included and going through those for several days until you eventually get a relevant pool of literature that is specifically looking at that question that you've built. Mm -hmm. So then with the systematic review, you pool all that information and you come up with what's called a narrative synthesis of the data. So you, you read through everything and you get a sense of what the literature is telling you. And, and it's, it's a narrative synthesis 
but there is still data involved. You have a data extraction, you're looking at the relationships in all of these studies or associations. Um, and so you're trying to find some consistency within the literature to help weave that narrative synthesis. Mm -hmm. now, now there's a term called heterogeneity, which will come up a few times. So that just means whether or not there's a diversion in the literature or in whatever measure you're looking at um, versus homogeneity, things are very similar. Mm. So if, if there's a heterogeneity in the literature that you're looking at for your research question that you've pulled together for your systematic review, mm -hmm. then it becomes very difficult to perform a meta-analysis. Um, just mm. you're trying to compare one measure with another measure and, and it doesn't really sync up that well. Right. However, if you have homogeneity or you start to have similar measures of maybe your health outcome or similar measures of your physical activity outcome, whatever it is you're interested in or your exposures and your outcome, I should say, mm -hmm. then you can start pooling in what's called a meta-analysis. So instead of weaving a narrative synthesis, mm -hmm. now you can actually start performing some statistical analysis on these values that you extracted from the studies. Mm -hmm. So you can start pooling. Um, it's very interesting. In Interesting. It's very easy in terms of um, something like randomized control trials. So you have um, a baseline condition so you, and a post condition. So you have a change based on this intervention. So you can see the change in something like this one that we look at here in body mass index based on metformin use. Mm -hmm. And so we can pool all of those changes together and it helps reduce some of the noise that maybe one really interesting study could bring. So, so perhaps one study said that metformin is definitely good for BMI, but consistently the literature says that there isn't much of an effect perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so by pooling all of those together, it sort of regresses back to the mean and we're able to see a better version of what the true scenario is with that research question we had in mind. Nice, wow. Yeah. Lots of information. So <laughs> yeah. I'm going to rewind a little bit. So what sure. is, in systematic reviews, you said we have to screen titles and abstract first, right? Mm -hmm. So what, can you tell us like the step-by-step, -step, just a brief overview of step-by-step -step guide for systematic review? Sure. Uh, so step one, would be the research question, generating mm -hmm. that, having your team, and uh, it, it helps to have an expert panel so that you can run all of these things by beforehand. Mm -hmm. And then step like two- Like yourself? Well, I'm still <laughs> part of the working group. I'm one of the busy bees right now, not necessarily the expert. I want to get to that expert okay. panel eventually. So then I yeah. can just say yes or no to people. But uh, then you have the- the piloting of a search strategy. Um, so then once you're happy with that search strategy, then you can actually search for all the titles mm -hmm. or all of the relevant literature. Mm -hmm. And then when you go through that search, you can download all of the titles and abstracts of the papers mm -hmm. into software or Excel or whatever you're gonna use to screen it. And so at the first level or level one screening, you'd go through each title and abstract. Sometimes you just need the title, sometimes you need the abstract as well to get a sense of whether or not this particular study is going to fit within your research question. Um, and then from there, 
there's sort of a yes, no, maybe some are definitely not relevant. So they're quick to weed out. Some definitely are relevant. So they're quick to screen into your study. And then there's some that you're not too sure. So you have a close look. And then in the end, usually err on the side of caution to go to level two. So with level two screening, uh, now you're starting to look at full text. So this is, this is very helpful for those ones that you weren't too sure of back at level one. You know, they could be measuring the thing we're after. They could not be. We're not entirely sure. But by going through the whole paper, now we can be very sure as to whether or not they're measuring or looking at the relationships that we're interested in. And so at this level two stage, then we do the same process, yes, no, um, with the full text going through each paper. And then moving on to the data extraction phase. Now we go through those full texts again and we start taking out all the relevant information. So the tables of information or the text of information, looking at perhaps regression coefficients or mean changes, any sort of statistical analysis that we're okay. interested in in this case. And we start entering that into separate files. And then through that, we can also get the sense, as I was mentioning, whether or not a meta-analysis would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. based on that data. Nice. And if it's appro appropriate, then you will move on to conducting a meta-analysis with the data that you have. Yeah, absolutely. So with the paper that I sent around, so it, there was a, a weighted mean difference for change. So mm -hmm. looking at pre-post um, and just seeing whether or not there was a true change once we pooled all of the studies. Mm -hmm. um, but then we, we started to notice heterogeneity again. So this time, mm -hmm. not heterogeneity in the measures or in any of that. It was heterogeneity in the results. So why, instead of being tightly clustered together, there was something that was causing them to sort of deviate away from one another in our results. Okay. So you can think of something like a 95% confidence interval. So mm -hmm. if you have your measure and your 95% confidence interval, if the 95% confidence interval is very close, that mm -hmm. would be homogeneity versus mm -hmm. if it's very far, that's heterogeneity. I was fortunate enough to have a good undergraduate supervisor who instead of being discouraged by that heterogeneity said, this is actually a very good thing. This means that there's something in there that's causing a difference and we just have to find that difference. Mm -hmm. And so we pushed on and we kept looking at why would there be a difference in these? And we found out that uh, in terms of dose of metformin and as well, there was some height effects. So we found that metformin actually increased height. It wasn't necessarily that it was decreasing BMI and helping with obesity, but it was actually mm -hmm. making these kids slightly taller. Nice. That said, there was a few studies in there, and I guess I shouldn't go through all the limitations of the study. You can you can read on that separately. Yeah, let's just highlight the good things about your paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I took some metformin as a child. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I, I think there's probably more to the story than mm -hmm. metformin increases height. I think mm -hmm. the problem is, is that a lot of studies aren't reporting height and they're just reporting BMI and saying that it's great, which is fine in adult populations because mm -hmm. height is relatively stable, but in children, your height is increasing constantly. So if you're gonna say BMI is changing, you should probably report height as well. Right, that's a really good point. So now I see uh, your paper and students probably read um, 
your entire article, hopefully. <laughs> and now, yeah, in this episode, uh, in this series, we went through all the different study designs, starting from ecological studies to, um, you know, cross-sectional cohort studies, case control, um, you know, quasi-experimental and randomized controlled trials. And I can see from the title of your paper that it, it was a systematic review and meta-analysis of um, randomized controlled trials. So, mm -hmm. so you know, randomized controlled trial is considered as a gold standard of the experiment study design. And again, systematic review and meta-analysis is at the top of the hierarchy of evidence. So, you know, I can't imagine the impact of this study because the the quality of data and study designs that got into this review. So what do you, would you comment on that? I could see how it would, um, how it could seem like the quality of the study should be very high based on the quality of the studies. But I, I think with this particular study, I think it was more of a statement on the lack of reporting in studies that have been in the field. Um, we, we were very apprehensive about saying that metformin increases height in, in our results. Like it, it was shown obviously in this meta-analysis that that was occurring, but, but we, we really wanted to downplay that and say there was limitations in the literature and, and just as a field as general report heights was one of the main things that we said, but mm -hmm. But no, it is a good point. Um, and in fact, something that I skipped over as we were discussing, and maybe you were leading me to that, was that you tend to assess the quality of the studies as you're going as well. So you do the data extraction, and then at the same time, you can perform um, study quality. So determining each study, if they hit or miss uh, several different aspects. And you can use that to descriptively talk about the studies in general, or mm -hmm. some people use that as an exclusion criteria, very clinical uh, meta-analyses, um, or you can use it as in part of a meta-regression. That can be one of your variables. So if you've talked about regression analyses, have you? Yes, we oh, will. So, well, we have okay. by this point. <laughs> Oh, great. So not spoiling anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can perform a regression within uh, your meta-analysis as well, something called a meta-regression. And you mm -hmm. can use certain variables as your covariates within there, one of them being study quality. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. Um, well, thanks for that comment. And um, so now I want to move on to, to um, talking about what now? So you've conducted or involved in nine systematic reviews or any review type papers. Um, and now you're working as a postdoctoral fellow and uh, potentially you'll become uh, an independent researcher at one point in the near future. So what's your, what, what are you working on right now? Do you, are you involved in any reviews? If, if so, what those review project look like? And in the future, what kind of research do you want to do? 
Yeah, so I am involved in uh, systematic review currently. Um, and, and this is more aligned with, with the direction that my research has gone. It's, it's less clinical and off-label prescription drugs and more implications for policy and looking at movement behaviors. So I am leading a systematic review looking at sedentary behaviors in the school and mm -hmm. school-based sedentary behaviors. So things like homework, uh, or time spent studying. So the idea is, is that this is one piece of information that's going to be used in, as part of a broader team to develop guidelines for schools on mm -hmm. sedentary behaviors. Mm -hmm. so, so having more of a policy level implication and saying, releasing something that schools can then use to say, you know, perhaps um, a standing desk intervention is a good idea since several of these studies and these guidelines show that having a standing desk is reduces interruptions in class. That's mm -hmm. not a finding I've found, just an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but just an example. Yeah, Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's in there, who knows? We'll find yeah. out, I'll let you know in, a few months here. Mm -hmm. uh, so just started that. And so screening abstracts right now. So trying to get through about a thousand titles and abstracts a day, which is a decent amount to make you go cross-eyed. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the future, I think systematic reviews will definitely be a part of that future. I think uh, they're, they're very easy to do in the sense of there's no ethics to fill out um, mm. you just need to put in a lot of time mm -hmm. uh, so and trying to figure out ways to reduce that time maybe something I'm interested in the future as well so mm -hmm. there's different the term gets applied very loosely to a lot of things but machine learning applications so essentially you're going through a lot of data in a sense when you're screening out titles and abstracts it doesn't mm -hmm. seem like data in the conventional sense because it's a lot of words but there's different programs or algorithms that you can build that every time that you screen it will take all of those words and start building almost a dictionary or predictive models to determine what which studies are going to be relevant in the rest of this pool so by by going through that process, you can really decrease the amount of time that you spent on level one, which tends to be the bottleneck of all these sudden or systematic reviews. Mm -hmm. And it, in fact, there is software. Uh, so you've used Distiller before, yeah? Mm -hmm. So Distiller is a software used for systematic reviews. And I believe they implement uh, a program where it won't sort out abstracts and titles for you like it won't say this is an exclude and you don't have to go through it but mm -hmm. what they will do is once you start making decisions it will start ranking um, different files so that it puts the most relevant first and you can take your time but once you get near the end of your systematic review screening process it'll have the least relevant so that should be hypothetically speaking fast you can go very fast and start filtering these out and I believe wow. there's a there's a few other programs i haven't looked at it exclusively i think i'd <laughs> i'm a very i like to build things i like to work with things so i think my approach would probably be just to build something from scratch i think that's mm -hmm. that's fun for me um so yeah that would be one thing that i would definitely like to look at in the future 
Nice. That sounds very complicated. Uh, but if that's available, I'll, I, I'd love to use it. Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, so as long as so distiller has that um, ability to rank based on the performance that have has been done. Mm -hmm. So then I guess it's about um, establishing some kind of accuracy and precision um, in the predictive modeling using machine learning. Is that the correct way that I'm going? Yeah, no, I think that's that would be my first step. I mean, there's yeah. already been many reviews that have been conducted where people have done the work. And, and actually, one of my ideas was to go through a review that I was actively involved in. So then at least I have some experience on it. And, mm -hmm. and all of the files have already been sorted um, and go through it again. But this time, just let some sort of machine learning algorithm determine mm -hmm. what is most important for it. Wow. And then comparing so, those two. Yeah. So in the near future, we're going to have robots to screen, <laughs> do level one screening, and potentially maybe not level two. Maybe that's not in the near future. What do you, th what do you think? I guess <laughs> if you wanted to have fun, you could turn it into a robot. <laughs> Instead of just a computer program, you could make an actual a version of me clicking the button for now every time. But but I will say, so so this is something I'm casually interested in, we'll say I haven't pursued it over actively, but there is a downside. So what is that? It's, it's ironic that I would want to dedicate time to making a more streamlined process when I've gained so much experience by doing that exact thing. Um, like, like I think going through a systematic review, it's a lot of work. It's one of the best things that, uh, someone who's new to research can do though, because it, it helps learn about study design, it helps learn about quickly discerning what's of value to mm -hmm. whatever research question you have. And so mm -hmm. by getting more efficient at that process, you would be sort of stripping away the ability for junior scientists to learn that valuable skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Um, okay, so I think in your talk, you touched on two important points that I want to discuss further in relation to uh, conducting a research. So in the earlier um, course lecture of the course, we talked about the application of epidemiology in public health. So our study um, informing public health policy and you mentioned that with your um, new sedentary behavior um, in school review project. So, so um, in your previous, like your previous, when you think about your previous reviews, what were the, the most important um, implications would you say, or like what was the highlight of, of the reviews that you conducted in terms of its link to public health policy formation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, mm -hmm. And one that definitely should be front of mind at all times when you're conducting this type of research. I, I, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in systematic reviews that help create guidelines for Canada for children and youth 24-hour movement behaviors, mm -hmm. and as well the early years uh, Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines for early years. So mm -hmm. that's 
probably the most tangible examples that I could come up with for sure in that these were pieces of evidence and hours upon hours upon hours and hours of work, mm-hmm. you know, broken down into one page things that we can give out to the general public to help best inform them on how to be active and what levels of activity and sleep and sedentary time they should be engaging in. Mm-hmm. So all epidemiological research can do um, can inform public health policy, but I guess a systematic review, it's, real, it's a really good um, research that links all the um, epidemiological evidence and public health policy formation by gathering those evidence and informing our public health policy and producing something um, that's public facing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it, it does a very good job of buffering studies. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned it before in the meta-analysis example, but if one study comes out with a finding that may catch headlines or, mm-hmm. you know, seems like it's, it leads the research ideas that way, mm-hmm. by performing a systematic review or a meta-analysis, we get a better picture of what's actually happening in the literature by pooling all available evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well, you know, you have to consider too, there is publication bias potentially. It's always one limitation of systematic reviews. Mm-hmm. So it may be that the non-significant findings aren't published. So always mm-hmm. a consideration to sort of balance that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I want to talk about is in, in the last one about ethics. So you mentioned that we don't have to get ethics approval to conduct a systematic review. review. Why is that? Uh, no human participants, unless you consider the people screening to be in some sort of weird experiment <laughs> <laughs> for attention and time dedicated to a task. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously you still want to be considerate of resources. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're at a public institution, you should be registering all of these trials or all these systematic reviews in some sort of um, protocol type place so that you're mm-hmm. not conducting the same systematic review that's already been done or someone is already working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but because there's no human participants or animal participants, it's just reviewing the literature. That would be why you're not going through ethics. Mm-hmm because you're not collecting primary data from human participants. Yeah, or animals. Or animals, or animals, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, Okay. Um, that's good. So, well, I think we got lots of good information and we learned a lot, um, so thanks for that. Um, before we finish, do you want, do you have anything to say to our students? And it could be anything. Anything? Yes. Oh, so much pressure. Anything <laughs> is such a vast, infinite amount. Mm-hmm. Um, how about this? This is easy enough. They're third year students. Systematic yes. reviews are a great way to get involved in research. If you're interested in research, a systematic review is an excellent opportunity to get a better understanding of what research is, what mm-hmm. your field is. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, if you do get involved, don't get scared away with is this all research is is just sorting through files 
-hmm. it's not just that, but it, it's, mm -hmm. it's a very good exposure, I would say. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Kuzik, for coming in. Thanks for having me, Dr. Lee. Great. Thanks. Pleasure.